Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Martin Roddy. Professor Roddy is Professor of Central European History at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. He's the author of a good number of well-praised books, dealing with, uh, respectively, the Emperor Charles V and aspects of Magyar history. And today we are speaking about his newest books, newest book, The Habsburgs, To Rule the World. Welcome, Professor Roddy. Greetings. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Well, the thesis of the book, let, let's, put it, let's, let's, let's put it another way, because we're dealing with a vast... Um, an empire that reached around the world at one point, and we're dealing with a thousand years of history. So to impose a thesis on such a geographic spread and such a chronological range would be difficult indeed. I think it would be, 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 be forcing something into a Procrustean bed. What I've tried to show is the dynamics that guided the Habsburg family during the period of their uh, their rule um, globally and over that period of a thousand years. So in other words, what I've tried to do is to show the dynamics and the dynamics are firstly a belief in a mission for the family, a dynastic identity, a belief that they have a vocation which is worldwide, which is literally to rule the world as, as as they themselves put it in the in the 15th century, um, that they are there as well to um, uh, protect the Catholic Church, to forward the faith. And then, of course, as we move into the modern period, that they are there to um, maintain the happiness, welfare, and indeed bliss of subjects. Then in the 19th century, to act as a bulwark against um, liberalism, and revolutionary nationalism, and finally as an institution that tries to maintain peace in Central Europe. So there are going to be a number of different missions, but all of those are grandiose, and all of them um, uh, uh, speak to the greatness that they believe is inherent within their family. Can you explain for the audience the origins of the dynasty? The, yeah, the, 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 we can go back to about the year, um, the, the, the 10th century, somewhere at the, in, in, in the end of the 10th century. And at that point, the Habsburgs are rulers uh, of a package of lands, distributed a broken up package of lands on the French, uh, German French border today in Alsace and in northern Switzerland. This is their home base. And the main branch of the Habsburgs are confined 
to or operating within the region known as the Argau, which is now in northern Switzerland. Now, the Argau is um, a part of Switzerland, and most people imagine that Switzerland consists of mountains. About 40% of Switzerland today is plain, um, or at least rolling countryside. And this is where the Habsburgs have their origin. Now, if you think they've got the Alps behind them, you're going to have a large amount of rivers flowing through that territory. It's very well watered. And the Habsburgs originate at the confluence of three of the great rivers in northern Switzerland, uh, the Ara, the Royce and the Limmat. Their earliest, um, one of their earliest possessions is a place called Brugge, which means bridge precisely because it's over the, um, o- o- over, over the rivers and Brugge stands more or less at the place of their confluence and the rivers nourish the plains that provide a very fertile countryside. They also um, provide routes for commerce. And beside the rivers are the great roadways that are built, which will cross the Alps. And the big one there is the St. Gotthard Pass, which opens in the 1220s and really provides a link between the cities of northern Italy and the uh, great fairs of northern France and Flanders. So they are straddling a very lush countryside and they are straddling a great commercial network. So they are able to build up their power during the course of the uh, the 12th and 13th centuries. And it's in the 13th century that the real takeoff happens because a Habsburg is appointed Holy Roman Emperor i.e., well, at this point, he's just king, um, King Rudolf, and he's appointed uh, 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 king of Germany. It's an elected office. Nobody else is available. Um, And the princes think, well, we'll have Rudolf because he's already well into his 50s. He won't last much longer. In fact, he goes on for another 20 years. And during that time, he takes on the greatest lord in Central Europe, who is Ottokar II of Bohemia. And he defeats Ottokar, kills him on the battlefield, and takes his Austrian lands, so that they have got on the one side these Swiss lands, and then on the other side uh, these Austrian lands. And the Austrian lands themselves are also wealthy, They have a considerable metal industry. They have uh, 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 towns that uh, feed in through the Adriatic trade. These are, again, wealthy places. Ideally, the Habsburgs would like to get their hands on Bohemia, which has a tremendous mining industry. But that has that one. They would have to wait for that, wait till the 16th century. But that is the origin of Habsburg power. It's based on commerce and it's based on the seizure of the Austrian lands in 1278. What explains the relative eclipse of the dynasty in the 14th century? The, the 14th century is unfortunate for the Habsburgs. They've made it to the office of King of Germany. In order to become emperor, you have to be crowned in Rome at this time. They aren't crowned in Rome. They plan to, but it's quite a journey. Um, they uh, 
are able to, uh, Rudolph is able to get his son uh, eventually appointed as his successor. Uh, the electors are very reluctant to have a father-to-son succession, so there's an, there's an intermediate stage. Um, they don't want a hereditary dynasty appearing, but um, Albrecht, Rudolf's son, does manage to take over, but he is assassinated by a nephew in 1308, and this casts a pall over the family. It's a great disgrace that there has been what is called at the time a parricide within the family, and that pushes the Habsburgs to the margins, and instead we see new families emerging, particularly the Wittelsbachs in Bavaria and the Luxembourgers who will move, rather like the Habsburgs move from Switzerland to Austria, the Luxembourgers will move from uh, Luxembourg uh, to take over Bohemia. And they will, though these two, the Wittelsbachs and Luxembourgers, will be the dominant families in the 14th century. And it's only when the Luxembourg line expires that the Habsburgs are back in with a chance. How exactly did Frederick III become emperor in the mid-15th century? The, it's, it's, a, it's a complex um, development. The Sigismund of Luxembourg, who is the, um, the last of the Luxembourg rulers, he has married his daughter to um, Albert of Habsburg. Albert of Habsburg is... Uh, a particularly good military commander, and Sigismund needs Albert to provide uh, the expertise, but also the resource and wherewithal to uh, help him in his wars in Bohemia, where he's fighting uh, a, a mixture, really, of a national rebellion and a religious rebellion. He needs um, Albert of Habsburg, and so Albert... Um, marries the daughter of Sigismund, and when Sigismund dies, the electors go along, if you like, with Sigismund's promotion and preferment of this man, and they elect him as king. The problem is that Albert succumbs almost immediately to dysentery. The electors then look around, and the leader of the Habsburg family is... Frederick, Frederick uh, III, and um, they elect him because he stands closest to Albert, and at the same time, he has all the right credentials. He's very tall, he is distinguished-looking with long blonde hair, he's of originally Polish origin, and long blonde hair is the marks of, one of the marks of the Polish kings, and he has done all the right things. He's been to Jerusalem. He was dubbed a knight there. Uh, and the electors choose him. And, of course, the great thing about him is that he remains on the throne for something like um, 50 years. By the time he dies in the 1490s, a Habsburg has been running the Holy Roman Emperor uh, as either a king or as an emperor like Frederick III, they've been running it for 50, 60 years. 
And that consolidates the Habsburg position. It now becomes almost de facto that there is going to be a Habsburg running it. And Frederick is able to get his son, Maximilian, crowned in advance. So Maximilian succeeds Frederick and continues the Habsburg line, which will then remain more or less unbroken until the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire in 1806. What does one make of the Emperor Maximilian? He seems to have uh, embodied in some ways aspects of uh, Habsburg ideals. At the same time, in terms of concrete achievements, uh, seems to be lacking. Well, I mean, this is he wouldn't agree with you because uh, on his the place he originally intended to be his tomb. Um, but uh, uh, it, 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 it wouldn't fit and had to be moved elsewhere. Um, his empty tomb, therefore, uh, consists of 17 panels where he lists his military victories. I think that that. The key with Maximilian is, firstly, the marriage that he constructs in 1478 with um, Mary of Burgundy. And this brings him uh, uh, the bride who is the wealthiest woman in Christendom at the time. She is the heir to the Burgundian fortune, which includes critically the Low Countries, which are the, the the economic powerhouse of Europe. So he's got tremendous wealth through his wife, but that's in name only. He's going to have to fight for it. And for very long periods, he's at war in the Netherlands, in Belgium and the Netherlands, in the Low Countries. He's at war trying to make sure that the cities and the local nobility will accept his rule. It takes virtually his entire career to establish that. So there is an achievement there. He's also active in northern Italy less effectively. Um, he's trying to outmaneuver the French king. Ultimately, it will be his grandson that does that outmaneuvering, and the reckoning will be delayed until the 1520s. But Maximilian himself is 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 a doer as well as a dreamer. He's remembered as a dreamer because he has all these um, uh, splendid commissions with artists like uh, Albrecht Dürer, and they put together huge um, woodcuts. And the purpose of these woodcuts, and what we're talking about, one woodcut I think is something like 100 feet long, another is uh, 14 foot high, uh, representing either a triumphal procession or what is known as the triumphal arch, which is an allegory of Maximilian's achievements. Um, and these, the idea is that these will be given to noblemen to put up in their castles um, and to town councils to put into their town halls um, that you'll receive a gift of 40, 80 sheets of paper. You may choose to colour them in if you want to, and then you'll glue them up as a statement of Maximilian's greatness, a present from Maximilian about himself, really. But on top of that, we've got 2,000 portraits of Maximilian. He's always having his portrait taken. And the reason is 
to make sure that people know who he is. He's a uh, uh, will send these portraits out to people so they can know and see and have a visible reminder of who the emperor actually is. Um, and when he's not sending people allegories of himself and of the Habsburgs or portraits of himself, he's visiting them. He probably is the most travelled of the emperors for about a hundred years. He goes throughout um, uh, Germany, northern Italy. He is there in order to make his presence known. So, yes, Maximilian is has fabulous ideas about what the Habsburgs stand for. But at the same time, he's not just somebody who loftily ruminates. He's somebody who gets on with the task of governing. And he understands how the dynastic system works. And of course, what we have most spectacularly is the the twin double marriages he arranges, whereby he uh, marries his son to um, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, a Spanish princess and uh, a Spanish prince will then marry a second of his daughters, another of his daughters. And then we have uh, the similar double marriage being engineered with the rulers of Bohemia or the ruler of Bohemia and Hungary. Now, these dynastic marriages are gambles because depending on who dies first, the spoils may go to either side of the contracting parties. Maximilian's gamble pays off twice so that he is able to get his son as king of Spain. He is Philip I of Spain, and he's able to get his grandson Ferdinand as king of Bohemia and Hungary in 1526 after his death. But the plan has been put in train in advance by Maximilian. How influenced was the Emperor Maximilian and his grandson Charles V by the court style and richness of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy? They, there is an emulation there. Uh, they don't have the money that the Valois um, Dukes have because Burgundy itself has been lost. And Burgundy as it's been taken over by France, leaving really this rump in the Holy Roman Empire, Franche-Comte, but also the Low Countries. They pick up, however, the um, uh, much of the, firstly, the formality of the Burgundian court. And it's very formal, and, and as a result, retraining has to take place of their of, of Charles V's household to get it to conform to Burgundian standards. And particularly as well, they take over the Order of the Golden Fleece. This is the most prestigious of the chivalric orders, and it's a mechanism whereby Charles V in particular is able to reward loyal uh, brokerage system whereby the ruler is able to listen, take on board 
and consider complaints given at meetings of the order, given in uh, a company almost of equals. So the Burgundian ceremony is adopted, Burgundian forms are adopted, but they are utilised in a way to uh, uh, um, uh, bring about political purposes. Would it be true to say that you do not agree with uh, those German 19th century historians who argued that it was the Habsburgs' extra German interest and concerns that prevented them from making Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire for that matter, a nation-state a la England and France? I mean, this is I mean, this is one of the huge problems in dealing with the Habsburgs, is that it's overwritten by... Um, 19th and 20th century uh, historiography and the concern that um, historians had in the 19th century was uh, the uh, administrative centralization they believe in the state they see centralized institutions as necessary for state formation and of course the Habsburgs never have a centralized administration they have separate administrations for their separate lands they don't adopt if you like a high modern position at the same time um, they have a multinational state they don't um uh, they don't just confine themselves to Germany because people aren't really thinking in terms. They may think in terms of nation, nationhood, but they're not making that necessary connection between state and nationhood, which is assumed in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So the problem with dealing with the Habsburgs is that uh, one's applying to them categories that really just don't, uh, that, that don't fit at all for the time in which they're operating. And German historians, of course, they look at the Habsburgs and they blame them to an extent, and particularly Prussian ones, because they don't like the fact that they're Catholics. Um, but German historians are constantly in the business of blaming, particularly 19th and 20th century ones, uh, blaming Frederick II in the uh, 13th century for spending more time in Italy and Sicily than he did in Germany, blaming um, the investiture contest in the 11th and early 12th centuries from, from uh, uh, for, for disrupting um, the power of the monarchy uh, and forcing humiliations on poor uh, Emperor Henry IV. So in other words, there's a long tradition there of German historians uh, looking for uh, an explanation as to why a unified German state only emerged in the 1870s. And they're really asking the, the wrong question because it's not just uh, Germany that's a late developer. So, uh, so is most of Europe, actually. Italy is only unified in the 1860s. Uh, uh, then Hungary, Bohemia, these only become independent nation states much later. So in other words, they're really asking, uh, firstly, the wrong question, and they're not looking over their shoulders at what's happening elsewhere. How would you evaluate the successes and failures of Charles V? And would it not be the case that um, you look upon him not quite in the same light in terms of uh, success as Jeffrey Parker in his recent biography? Well, 
I mean, I think the point that Parker makes is that he 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 does his best with the um, uh, resources available to him, and that, of course, is is the critical point that his he he, does, he has the Netherlands, he has Spain, um, uh, but he's fighting on a German front. And he is at times fighting on the Mediterranean front as well. And he's also having to sustain wars in northern Italy. He's got an awful lot of resource intensive obligations to meet. Uh, the main problem which he has is that he can't conceive of a religious solution that falls short of admitting the supremacy of the Pope um, and admitting basic tenets of Catholic doctrine. If he had been able to be flexible on that, and this is what Protestant sages give us a bit of flexibility and we can do a deal. He can't, he isn't flexible enough. Uh, and at the same time, he's a person that wants everything pinned down. His brother is much more subtle, much more ready to leave things open. And that I think is where Charles V comes unstuck. Uh, it's, his problem really with Germany that is his undoing and how he evaluates himself as well. He regards himself as having failed uh, and he regards that failure as really having been played out on the German stage. Would you agree with Fernand Brodel that there was a missed opportunity when Philip II did not take Cardinal Granville's advice and move the capital of his empire from Madrid to Lisbon? That's too speculative. I couldn't possibly answer that. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, that's. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, there are going to be plenty of plenty of missed opportunities, and that that strikes me as one of the one of the most remote. Um, What's more, the point is uh, the missed opportunity of not actually getting a getting a settlement with England. That would have been the cleverer thing to have done. Was it not the case that the future Emperor Rudolf II and his brothers were educated at the Spanish court because uh, their uncle, Philip II, distrusted the orthodoxy of his cousin and brother-in-law, the Emperor Maximilian II? Um, I think it's more than that because I mean Maximilian II himself is is brought up in um, in 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 Spain, and um, uh, it's part of the, if you like, uh, um, coming of age that rulers should spend time in their cousins' courts. So Philip II does spend time. He spends time in the Netherlands. He spends time in Germany. He attends some of the sessions of the Council of Trent. Uh, and he's not very good. He's, Philip II is a very stiff man, and he doesn't really like the way that German politics is um, largely about drinking with German princes until you're uh, under the table. Uh, and he's not very good at that. Um, so, in other words, there is plenty of this idea of transfer of young men from one court to another because they still see the Habsburg um, Empire, even though it's been divided 
on Charles V's death into, if you like, the two branches, uh, one headed by Charles's brother Ferdinand, the other headed by his son Philip. Despite these two branches emerging, they consider themselves to be um, uh, all still part and parcel of the House of Austria. So, in other words, that exchange of persons is part of the Habsburg idea. And so, likewise, is the intermarriage. They're regularly marrying into the other branch, exchanging, if you like, cousins, nephews and nieces. Each one of those is technically an incestuous union. Each one of them has to get permission from the Pope. And of course, over time, one will see the products of what happens with repeated intermarriage between members of the same family. Was not one of the most important results of the Battle of the White Mountain the Germanization of the Bohemian nobility? That's a, that's a difficult one. Uh, the Bohemian nobility, about a third to a half, depending on how you count them, are eliminated. Uh, they're forced into exile. Uh, they are replaced um, by people that have been loyal to Ferdinand II. So that would be Germans and that would be um, uh uh, Italians as well. There are plenty of Italians will go into Bohemia and hold office and hold um, aristocratic uh, titles there. It's this idea of Germanization that I find a little bit difficult um, because there are plenty of Czech nobles who make a deal with the um, with the Habsburgs, and they retain their Czechishness. It's just that they happen to speak German. That is the language of the court, and they speak Italian because that's also one of the languages of the court at various at various points. So the extent to which they're Germanized, I think, is is a is a difficult one to tease out. They have been homogenized within the general Habsburg idea which is um, about regular trips to Vienna, having a palace in Vienna as well as a palace in the uh, Bohemian countryside. So there are, they're being more homogenized as an imperial aristocracy rather than being Germanized into a, an alien German aristocracy. How did the Emperor Leopold reassert Habsburg power in the empire after the disaster of the Thirty Years' War? Well, he assumes leadership of the German princes um, because they are universally threatened by Louis XIV, and he is able to uh, lead the um, uh German princes to put together a resistance to Louis XIV and enlist various um, uh, commanders that will assist him in that process. Uh, he's also, most importantly, he defeats the Ottoman Turks. The Ottoman Turks have been a threat on 
the southern to the southern part of Europe for several centuries, and it's Leopold who gets rid of them. That has three main consequences. The first is that he's able to uh, show himself as a martial hero. In fact, he spends most of the time in Vienna. He doesn't lead any troops, but he's able to present himself as a new Hercules, um, a new Samson who is, has destroyed the, uh, the, the, the Turkish lion. Uh, he's, that's the first point. The second point is that he's able to, um, uh, in, in 1683, the, uh, the Turks are in Vienna or outside Vienna and they are raiding Bavaria. So one of the critical points is, he has given security to the empire, given security to the southern flank, which was at risk of being hit by uh, by the Turks. And thirdly, he has removed an ally of Louis XIV. Louis XIV is constantly trying to use the Turks and the Hungarians in order to embarrass Leopold, in order to score points, to score an advantage in his rear, as it were, in the rear, Leopold's rear, so that he's never able to concentrate forces on, on Louis XIV. And the Turks, the removal of the Turks, uh, removes that, that difficulty and that danger. So the importance of, um, uh, of Leopold's leadership cannot be underestimated, even though he's a pretty unprepossessing character. Uh, he's not really a very pleasant man. Um, and at the same time, he spends huge amounts of time delaying and diplomatically, he's normally a bit of a disaster. Why do you portray the Queen Empress Maria Theresa? Uh, as being much less an institutional conservative than is commonly the case. Much, sorry, I didn't hear that. Much less an institutional conservative. Yeah, because she wasn't. I mean, she's she's got a real problem on her hands that she has um, taken over a um, an, an empire under the most appalling circumstances. She's not been prepared for government. Uh, she's uh, doesn't understand how it works. She doesn't have much in the way of advisors that she knows and can trust. And she is confronted by Frederick the Great, who seizes the industrial heartland of the Habsburg monarchy, which is Silesia, which is where the big uh, mining and textile industries are developing. So she has got to do something to get that, to get the monarchy going. And I think that uh, expresses itself in her interest in coordination. And we have this um, uh, uh, attempt to merge the administrations of Austria and Bohemia, uh, and not just the, the, the civil service, the entire treasury apparatus. She wants to try and merge those together to provide centralization. She has to 
put finance outside administration in the end. It's too unwieldy. Uh, she does her best to try and cut down the vast number of sort of subcommittees, what are known as dicasteria, these subcommittees that involve and get, get in the way of policymaking. She institutes a central council that is supposed to survey policymaking in the round, have an overall, overall brief to uh, look at pan-monarchical concerns, pan-imperial concerns. She's engaged in a lot. At the same time, she wants to go further. She wants to um, uh, break down, in particular, uh, the existing set of relationships on the land, particularly um, feudalism, if you like, or serfdom. And she puts forward great proposals for Hungary, the Hungarian diet, parliament turns them down she closes down the parliament and imposes them anyway so she is uh, an innovator uh, she has a real problem on her hands which she's responding to and at the same time she's quite um, inventive in what she does and quite determined in doing it how would you differentiate the reform policies of the emperor joseph ii from those of his mother uh, I wouldn't. Um, they are following in largely the same pattern. The, um, they are both um, concerned with, on the one hand, trying to uh, maintain some form of alliance system with France, and on the other, some type of modus vivendi with Prussia. Um, Joseph attempts to bring Russia much more into the equation. Uh, the main problem which Joseph has, which Maria wouldn't have got involved in, is uh, this futile war against the Turks, which is what really uh, 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 puts a blight on Joseph's last years. Uh, he goes into a war with the Turks as part and parcel of a Russian alliance, and that is too high a price to pay. Would it be true to say that throughout the book you endeavored to get away from the stereotype that the Habsburgs as rulers and Vienna as an imperial capital were solely interested, culturally speaking, in music and puppet theater? Particularly uh, music in the 18th and century. What, music and, pu and theater. puppet theater in the 18th century, early 19th century. Um, well, um, that you're that you're endeavouring to get away from the stereotype throughout the book. Um, well, that's only a small part of the book, so I don't see how it could be three out throughout. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's what I'm. In, I mean, obviously, it's a centre of um, uh, uh, opera, um, of theatrical entertainment. I mean, Leopold the First is very active with uh, promoting the monarchy th through um, uh, ballet in particular and uh, interludes. Um, and likewise, um, uh, Joseph II encourages um, operatic performances. Uh, Maria herself is, is at the opera whenever a new production is put on. So they're very, they're very interested and concerned with that. I suppose what I'm more interested in is architecture and art and what it says 
in terms of the Habsburg vision of themselves rather than what um, uh, composers and musicians will be writing because they have a quite different agenda. Would it be true to say that unlike, say, Wolf, Wolfram Seaman, you do not really take seriously Prince Metternich's ideological discourse of conservatism and legitimacy? Oh, dear. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a conservative and he's a legitimist. But I mean, at the same time, uh, he will uh, he's prepared to trim both of those uh, in terms of his recognition, for instance, of the um, Latin American independent in Latin American independence. He's prepared to make concessions to that, even though it would offend the legitimist principle and the conservative principle. So, uh, yes, I mean, but at the same time, uh, he, when it when it satisfies him, then he will promote these interests through the Congress system. And of course, the Congress system is there to and gets itself all in a mess because it ends up defending the Ottoman Turks um, uh, against um, very popular uh, Greek revolutionaries. So the, the, he's prepared to promote certain things, but only when it suits him. When it doesn't suit him, he's prepared to let them go. And certainly he's no stickler for conservatism and for treaties and for legitimate instruments. I mean, the occupation of Krakow, 1846, is a clear violation of the terms of the Treaty of Vienna. So, but it suits him in 1846 to go in and occupy, um, to go in and occupy Krakow. What explains the quickness of the collapse of the Metternichian regime in March 1848? Because the court has been plotting against Metternich. Um, and the court is divided. There's not much leadership coming from the top. Uh, Emperor Ferdinand I of Austria uh, is, is not really interested in government at all. He's not providing leadership. Um, the... Uh, uh, Archduchess Sophie is probably the most important person within the court. She doesn't like Metternich. She thinks he's been holding on too long. She wants to promote um, uh, new people to positions of influence, in particular her son, Franz Josef. Uh, and she is pushing, therefore, for change. Behind all this is the malign influence of Anton Kolovrat Liebsteinsky, who thinks he knows far better than Metternich and should be in the driving seat. And that nexus really of uh, Count Kolovrat and Sophie, they are waiting for any occasion in order to get rid of Metternich. They know that on March the 13th, I think it is, 1848, there's going to be a, de a demonstration. They know there's going to be trouble. They have already brought celebratory bouquets to commemorate Metternich's overthrow. They're waiting for it. And they, 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 they push. Uh, the, the, the events take place. They push from within the court. They Basically, the, the, the chief advisors, people like Albrecht, they come round and John, they come round to, um, to 
recognizing that if order is going to be maintained, then Metternich should go. The problem is they get rid of Metternich and that just makes it worse because people see weakness at the top. It's the classic thing. Do you get rid of uh, the person with whom your regime is associated in order to buy time or uh, do you stick with them because otherwise it'll look as if you're capitulating and new demands will be laid? They go for getting rid of the man and new demands are laid. And the Habsburg Empire really suffers its its greatest shock, um, a shock far greater than 1740. Uh, they suffer a shock because it looks for a time as if they're only going to be left, and if they're lucky, with Hungary. What explains then the quick, relatively quick collapse of the uh, revolutionary forces? Um, they're outmaneuvered, and they're outmaneuvered militarily. They are forced into taking a military position. The military position is untenable. You have some very good generals. Once Italy is cleared, the armies can be brought back into um, uh, into coordinated um, action against the um, rebellious forces. So you've got a clear movement that Italy, once Italy is clear, then Bohemia falls um, and uh, um, it's that is almost deliberately engineered a crisis in Bohemia, a crisis in Prague. Then they move against Hungary, um, and Hungary is defeated in 1849. Uh, Vienna is um, uh, uh, a hotbed of insurrection, and the city is simply bombarded into surrender. So it's the generals are able to. Uh, bring up their forces and to uh, 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 force a submission of the rebel position. You state that the um, absolutist regime of the 1850s was, quote, a Josephist fantasy come true, unquote. But given the Concordat of 1855, isn't this a little bit of an exaggeration? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The, uh, that, of course, is, is the, the other side of it. Um, Joseph would not have made such, such a, a, a reconciliation and basically give up huge amounts of the prerogatives that the ruler had in respect of the Catholic Church. But I think one, by over-concentrating on the religious side, one loses the, uh, the, the, the dynamism that is going on within Vienna, within the civil service there, as these people have had to put up with a fairly um, somnambulant regime, uh, they are suddenly released um, from these uh, from from this um, uh, fairly dull mindset and are able to get on with creating a modernized state structure. So. One, one, one shouldn't let the concordat over-influence perceptions. Alan Skid, in his highly laudatory review of your book in the TLS back, I think, in June of this year, 
his only query was pertaining to um, your coverage of the um, assassination of the uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, he's stating that you are too anti-Serbian. What do you what do you make well, of that criticism? Well, I'm, it's not, I mean, it's no, I think it's it's not that. I'm, it's the 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 chapter on this actually identifies very clearly what the main Serbian problems and uh, difficulties were. And in fact, the regime, harsh regime, which they suffered in Bosnia. I mean, they are uh, excluded from political influence. They're excluded from education. Uh, they are excluded from the commercial life. Uh, and they operate that really at the lowest level of um, status within Bosnia. They are lower than the, than the Muslims. And on top of that, um, you've got these uh, largely Croatian archaeologists coming along with all the sorts of uh, cranial and skull evidence to show that uh, Serbs occupy an inferior position in the um, in, in the scale of human development. Um, I, I identify all that. What I home in on is the culpability of the Serbian government for the assassination. Now, one can go round and round and round arguing about this, but it strikes me that you know, the evidence of the trial records is fairly firm that um, the Serbian government was implicated in that. Um, and that would be the, the point of difference that I have with, with Alan Sked, who relies very much on a book that came out a couple of years ago, which is not without its problems. You mean the Zamatka book? Yeah, Zamatica, yeah, or Zamatica. Uh, what explains um, the reversal of a traditional pro-Austrian, pro-Hopsburg view of the empire by um, British journalists and uh, commentators in the pre-1914 period. I'm thinking of people like Seton Watson, Wickham Steed, who, um, of course, became very influential during the Great War itself. What explains their reversal of that sort of traditional British pro-Hopsburg uh, point of view? Hi, there was a there was a slight intermission there. Um, well, the uh, Wickhamsteed is very unfavourable to the Habsburg monarchy, uh, and he sticks his neck out there. The majority of people are regarding Austria as um, uh, a European necessity. His concern is that he sees the weakness of Austria and thinks that it's highly bureaucratic regime. I love the point which Wickham Steed makes, you know, that it requires in order to found a hospital, you now require 15 pieces of paper. Well, <laughs> I hate to think how many thousands of pieces of paper you need to have nowadays, but he sees it as an atrophied bureaucracy. He sees its weakness as a threat to the balance of power. So that is Wickham Steed's starting point. Seton Watson's is quite different. Seton Watson. Uh, discovers that the Hungarians have been lying to him, and he uh, he never forgives them for that. And it's that take that he has that they are oppressing their national minorities. And this is what he writes mostly about his conditions in Hungary, conditions in Croatia. That uh, that that it's that that has been that. 
that motivates him to write very nasty things about the uh, Hungarian government in particular and what he sees as Austrian weakness. He believes that Hungary will again, like Wickhamsteed, uh, will contribute to the destabilization of the um, uh, of the monarchy and therefore to the destabilization of Europe. What explains the collapse of the empire so suddenly in November 1918, and why did not the dynasty endeavor to hold on to the rural areas of uh, Upper and Lower Austria? Um, because they've lost the rural areas of Upper and Lower Austria. I mean, they're, 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 this is um, most of, I mean, most of the of large chunks of the uh, the countryside have been lost to what are known as the green cadres. Uh, these are bands of deserters, uh, people who have um, avoided conscription, who've gone into the woods, um, and they are uh, attacking convoys, post offices. Uh, essentially, huge areas of the countryside have been lost to control. The, um, in the countryside as well, there are there is a complete breakdown of authority as local village mayors seize goods that are going to be uh, taken off to the towns they make sure that they stay in the localities so you've got a complete breakdown of law and order in the countryside it'll be a couple of years before uh, before that order is returned uh, so i don't think they could have gone you know, into the countryside and 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 made a stand there. Uh, the, the collapse is the same reason that the um, uh, uh, that Russia collapses in 1917, Germany collapses in 1918. Uh, the Ottoman Empire will finally uh, dissolve, depending on how you judge the dissolution in 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 the early 1920s. It's they cannot withstand the. Um, uh, the, the privations of war. And one has to remember as well that it's not just the losers that uh, are territorially reconfigured uh, as a result of the First World War. Britain as well uh, faces probably one of the most significant nationalist insurrections in Europe during the First World War. That's namely the Irish uh, uprising. Uh, and at the end of the war, has to make concessions to Ireland and get and basically uh, create a separate independent Irish state. So the First World War is having a transforming effect, not only on the losers, but on the victors as well. What do you make of the sort of nostalgia for the Habsburg monarchy in its uh, late 19th century, 20, early 20th century Form that's been taking place in the last, uh, say, 40, 50 years? Well, it's, I mean, it's well done, the Vienna Tourist Board. Um, they've created, uh, I mean, a huge number of, um, uh, they've promoted this nostalgia. It's been encouraged as well by um, uh, things like Karl Schorsker's book on fantasy Eckler, Vienna, where he made people aware of just what a ferment of ideas was going on there. It's also being encouraged of late by um, uh, looking at Austrian science, in particular Austrian mathematics, physics, 
uh, and logic. And there's been a recent book published on that. Um, and so people are becoming more aware of the cultural achievement. But at the same time, there are stories that can be woven. And the story that is woven is the story of Sissy, the Empress Elizabeth, and everything that went on in her life. I mean, she's a, a great person to a uh, very complicated and complex personality. And people are able to home in on that either to show that, you know, here we have, um, a very gifted person, or here we have a woman betrayed. And so it fits, it fits various aspirations, but you've got Vienna, uh, is promoting it. Uh, when I was in Innsbruck last year, I noticed that there's, uh, uh, new sort of emphasis on the Empress there. In Budapest, they've got sissy trails um, for tourist purposes. An awful lot is uh, to do with um, promoting tourist destinations. And, of course, it's been helped by the fact that um, Hungary and Czech Republic have been in receipt of a huge amount of European funding for heritage and they have been able to restore and really make their uh uh their heritage buildings make them really look sparkling so i think there's a number of factors that come in coincide there there's an academic interest in aspects of uh vienna uh there's uh, a tourist interest and there's some personalities around which a story can be woven. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Uh, the Habsburgs need to be taken seriously. Well, with that observation, which I agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Roddy, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Roddy. Thank you.